Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to another episode in the New Books and Gender Studies podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Kyle McMillan, and today I am pleased to be joined by Dr. Angus McLaren with his new book, Playboys and Mayfair Men, Crime, Class, Masculinity, and Fascism in 1930s London. Professor, how are you doing? Fine, thanks. So I thought we could start out with just discussing uh, your academic career, your academic trajectory, and sort of what led you to write this book in particular? Yes, well, I began uh, on a, my career began on a sort of sour note in that my PhD, which uh, was finished in 1970, was a really old-fashioned sort of political history. And uh, I was filling a gap, so to speak, in the political history of 19th century France. Um, But at my last year at Harvard, uh, Theodore Zeldin from Oxford came through and was doing a completely different take on uh, the history of, of, um, of France by looking at issues such as sex and gender and consumerism. And uh, I realized that uh, I could do something much more interesting. And so I dropped political history. And uh, my first book was on uh, the history of birth control in 19th century England. And uh, that was launched largely because I was struck by the fact that um, perhaps the most important social change in the Western world in the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th centuries was the decline in the birth rate. And yet it was an issue that had not been uh, adequately investigated by by scholars. And this led me into a number of books on um, history of contraception, history of abortion, and eugenics. Uh, But I've also produced a few uh, books that have the attempt made the attempt to be so-called crossover books to try to attract a larger audience to uh, history. And uh, I sort of locate this book on um, Playboys to this um, this attempt to use a, a sensational case as a hook on which to describe the social changes that, that were taking place in, in Britain in the 1930s. Yeah, and I guess let's let's start there. So let's talk about the crime itself and sort of what happened at the Hyde Park Hotel that you sort of opened the book with. Right. Well, I guess I might begin by saying that um, one of the curious and and sort of minor issues that led me to this particular case was the fact that you had four uh, young men, all from good families, who, according to the press, used a um, uh, life preserver to attack a diamond salesman. And this didn't, this didn't make no sense to me, a life preserver, but I discovered that life preserver was the term used by the British for a, a, a blackjack, and it preserved the life, presumably, of the person who was being attacked. And uh, this, I was sort of curious about this and um, pursued the, um, the story of this particular robbery. And then my appetite was, was um, again, um, stimulated by the fact that the press referred to these four criminals 
as playboys. And uh, I was sort of taken aback by this, and I never really thought about the notion that the term playboy had a history. Uh, and one always associates it with, of course, um, Hugh Hefner in the 1950s. Uh, but here in the 1930s, you had um, these uh, sort of layabouts um, being a, a, a called playboys and, in fact, embracing the term. Um, I've wandered away a bit from your original question. What was it again? So what what exactly you know happened at the Hyde Park Hotel? What was the crime that was committed by these four men? Well, the crime was that these four men, all from respectable families, all well-educated, in their early 20s, um, decided to uh, rob a diamond salesman, one of the representatives of the Cartier, the world's most famous diamond company. So they checked into this luxurious hotel in, uh, near Hyde Park, the Hyde Park Hotel, and then phoned up Cartier's and asked that a range of diamonds, about nine diamond rings, be sent over to the hotel room where they could be appraised. And the, the man making the phone call uh, to, uh, pretended to be a member of a wealthy banking family. And his argument was that he was going to use these diamonds as part of a marriage settlement for his, up, his upcoming wedding with a rich woman. And so this diamond representative uh, put on his uh, coat and in his pocket, he carried nine diamonds, which would be worth about half a million pounds today. And extraordinarily walked across Hyde Park to the hotel. Uh, and there was attacked by these fellows uh, beaten over the head with the life preserver, uh, and his diamonds taken from him, and they fled into uh, West London. Yeah, so one of the, I thought, curious parts of the, your description of the crime and sort of the investigation and the trial was that all the hotel employees seemed to describe these four men as effeminate in their sort of witness testimony. So why, why was that? Why were they describing them this way? Yes, it's a very good question because uh, I've discovered quite quickly that these four people were, on the one hand, sort of womanizers. They all married at least once, if not more frequently, and were associated with, uh, playboys were associated with men preying on women. Um, but uh, the hotel uh, workers, that is to say the maids and the, and the waiters, almost all described these men as being, as being effeminate. And it occurred to me that what they really were talking about was that men who were taking uh, what was supposed to be an undue interest in their uh, presentation of self with um, immaculately well-dressed, good teeth, um, polished shoes, um, uh, glossy, glossy hair, uh, and this notion that uh, um, any man, any heterosexual man who took too great an interest in his uh, um, clothing or style was suspect. You know, I think this kind of leads into one of the other questions I had, but um, early on in, I, I believe in your introduction, you say that the 1930s was, and I'm quoting here, a period in which a generation of young men and women renegotiated their identities. So why was this happening in 1930s Britain? Well, I, in, in some ways it was a, still a, a reverberation of the First World War. Of course, the 1920s had seen the first response to the war, the great bloodletting, which had led to a sort of, by a sort of a rebound to the emergence of the flapper and uh, the, the sort of popular notion of the 1920s being a period of, of revolt against the 
stodgy um, Victorian age that World War I had brought an end to. In the 1930s, you have a young men who, uh, most of them were only born in about 1910, and um, that is to say of the, of the people I'm looking at, uh, but they, uh, in a sense, didn't have the excuse of their of their older generation who had, had faced the prospect of actually serving in the war. Uh, and the um, change in the uh, relationships of the sexes, um, one aspect of that was the continued decline of the birth rate, that marriage itself and it was no longer simply regarded as something to, as, a, as an institution to um, have children as its main uh, main um, duty, but that uh, the relationship between the sexes was increasingly based on, on sexuality. Uh, again, um, you have people like Mary Stopes, the British birth controller, um, stressing the necessity for, for having com compatible couples uh, and uh, having young men and women who, who knew each other far more um, closely than had been the case with their forebears. The Depression as well <coughs> led to um, reappraisals re of, of modernization. Britain was increasingly influenced by American culture, American movies being one of the main um, vehicles of this, um, this uh, cultural invasion. And amongst the upper classes, there was a certain repugnance for things American, which let's say of a mass society, of consumerism, uh, of a, a lack of, of deference to natural elites. Um, uh, but on the um, on the grassroots level, so to speak, uh, as you have the increased uh, activities of women in the labor force, um, they have a greater um, degree of self-confidence. Uh, in England, of course, the, the flapper vote had been passed in 1928, so that men and women, in theory, now were at least um, equal in the question of electoral um, politics. Um, the... <coughs> The fact is, however, that in the culture, they wanted it both ways. You still have popular accounts of um, rebellious women in the conclusion of novels and plays being brought to heel, that, they, that uh, there's, a, there's limits that have to be drawn. Um, but clearly there was a, an enormous questioning of what the relationship was between the sexes. Uh, it had, had by, by no means had been ultimately decided. Right. And so now that we sort of have a macro view of what was happening between the sexes, uh, let's go a little bit more micro. So who were these four men in particular? Sort of, you know, you mentioned that they're from well-to-do families, but exactly like what were what were their backstories? Well, they were, they're four young men, as I mentioned, between the ages, I think, of 22 and 26, Two of them were the sons of military officers, one, one a colonel, one a, a captain, I believe. One was a son of a wealthy um, textile um, comp manufacturer. Uh, and and, and the, the final fourth man, uh, his father was a successful businessman in, in the city of London. They all came from what one would call upper class families. Uh, they had links to the aristocracy amongst their networks of friends. Um, they all were educated. They went to good schools like uh, Harrow and, and um, um, Westminster, um, or sorry, Undal. Um, and they had uh, a network of, of relationships that um, 
put them in the position of um, feeling entitled uh, that uh, they came from well-to-do families and sort of assumed that naturally enough they would be taken care of one way or another. Right. And so I thought, you know, you kind of brought up parallels to the flapper earlier in our conversation. And I thought, you know, I've heard that said about the flapper, um, that essentially the idea of the flapper was invented. And you kind of make a similar argument that the idea of the playboy was sort of invented during this time. So what, what kind of went into the invention of this idea? Well, I think the invention was that it was based on the notion that uh, there, were, there was a sort of natural type of masculinity. Uh, and in very gross terms, the Victorian period had seen this sort of distant um, authoritarian patriarch, the man who had made all the decisions uh, based on reason and um, the, the wife, the woman, um, showing her deference to him. In the 20th century, historians have talked about the domestication, increased domestication of, of males, where the family was smaller, men spent more time at home, and took a greater interest and pride uh, in their abilities as being good husbands and good, good fathers. Um, now, the playboy, though, <clears throat> was a, a sort of dissident type of masculinity. There had always been uh, t- men... Uh, sometimes called dandies, uh, sometimes called bloods, um, macaronis, uh, who in a sense were on the uh, margins of respectable society. They were especially prone to um, accentuate their difference from ordinary men by their uh, casual disregard for middle-class mores and um, their their uh, interest in, in, in dress and presentation of self. Now the term playboy uh, was an old term that referred first of all to young men, young boys who who were players in the, in the stage of the 17th century theater. And later on it morphed into the term used to describe the sort of tricksters in especially in Irish society and um, the playboy of the Western world by Singh popularized the term in the 20th, early 20th century. Um, but it took on its um, it's uh, exploitative and um, sexual nature in the 1930s, uh, first of all in America, and indeed been by the 1920s, and then in, in Britain. And I guess the, the main issue of it was the term boy, that the essence of the playboy was someone who wasn't fully mature, uh, was not yet a, um, a respectable member of, of adult male society. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we find that... Um, for example, in in America, uh, Roosevelt, in trying to goad the Americans into entering World War II, said that uh, the Americans were viewed as playboys because they had the Russians and the uh, and the British doing their fighting for them. Uh, he wasn't talking about their sex sexuality, but rather this immaturity uh, that the term conjured up. Uh, so that we find with the the playboy. Um, is is sort of a projection of of how far uh, a um, a man might go uh, before he toppled over into, say, homosexuality. That both playboys and homosexuals were regarded as as similar in as as much as they took uh, too much of an interest in their own uh, well-being. They weren't weren't settling down. 
they were a sort of threat, a threat um, in the first instance to, to women um, because um, they were out, oftentimes out to exploit them, but also a threat to other men, in young men, that is to say, in providing a, a model a, um, of, of the man who lived by his wits uh, and catching funds, uh, borrowing from friends, living off family, uh, and not behaving as a proper Englishman should do. You know, at the sort of conclusion of the, you know, eventual trial of these four men, you see a lot of, um, you know, instances of them being called playboys in the media. And so I wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit how sort of around the conclusion of the trial, and maybe if you want to go into sort of what exactly the consequences were for this crime for these four men. But in what ways were they sort of, what ways were the, were the media or members of the media sort of using Playboy to interact with this, uh, this crime? Yes, well, with the, with the press, you have, of course, two main branches, the, the respectable broadsheets, the papers like the Times of London and the Observer. And then you have uh, the red tops, the, the um, tabloids, which uh, pandered to a, a, a much larger audience of sometimes with the Daily Mail, for example, having as many as 2 million uh, subscribers. And they would, the popular press was dependent upon stories of, uh, from the courts, um, sensational trials, uh, and um, also enormous amount of, of gossipy material, much of it um, recorded um, recording the activities of the royal family and the hangers-on. The Playboy suited the, um, the, the popular press because there was almost an insatiable appetite uh, amongst uh, the lower middle classes for stories about the uh, foibles of the, of the upper classes of the Toffs. Uh, and uh, it was a sort of a sense of, um, of class envy, perhaps, uh, but it was always uh, a surefire story if one could portray an upper-class man being brought low by uh, having uh, transgressed some particular statute or law. Um, in the trial itself, the, the judge expressed the, the um, disgust uh, of, the, of the respectable in viewing four young men who had gone to good schools but had gained nothing from their time spent there. Their schooling was only an evidence evidence of the wealth of their families that had um, been able to send them to wealthy schools such as uh, Harrow. Uh, and also uh, contempt from young men who <coughs> um, had made no real attempt to establish themselves professionally in life. Uh, this is perhaps brought out most clearly <coughs> in the judges um, asking at one point, uh, how long these men were uh, in a particular hotel, hotel bar. And one of the accused said, well, we were there, we had two drinks. Uh, and the judge said, is this, is this the way you measure time? Uh, he was horrified that, that they would be um, indifferent to, um, to respectable hours as kept by clocks, but rather based on their, their own personal well-being. Uh, so when they, they were... They were uh, all found guilty of conspiracy to commit robbery. Um, 
one of the young men uh, had not actually been at the scene of the crime, uh, so was not convicted for robbery with violence as the other th three were. Um, and two of the th of the four, the two who um, were responsible for holding down the salesman and for hitting him over the head with the blackjack, they were subjected not only to long prison terms, but also to being flogged, uh, that is to say, have being whipped by a cat of nine tails. Right, and, and that kind of introduces a very interesting chapter, uh, at least to me, about how much the flogging of these men was sort of a, a big deal, you know, in, in British society and sort of the discussion around, you know, pain and punishment and really sort of like criminal, the nature of criminal justice at the time. So um, I, I wondered if you wanted to dive into that a little bit. Yes, well, when I, I, I was trying to remember exactly how I got into writing this book. And um, I recall that I had dealt in an earlier book called Trials of Masculinity with the campaign for the um, end to corporal punishment in the 19th century. Uh, and um, there was, Foucault talks about the fact that increasingly it was the mind that was the subject of, of rehabilitation rather than the, than the body for punishment in the 19th century. And you see that there is a decline in the use of the whip um, across Europe. Um, so when this, these two of these young men are, are sentenced to be flogged, there's horror. Uh, now in, on, in Europe, there's um, again the, the notion that this is sort of shows British uh, hypocrisy because the British present, present themselves as a civilized race and yet they are having recourse to this type of <clears throat> sort of medieval, one might use that term, uh, punishment. Uh, and amongst the British themselves, um, many people didn't even realize that flogging still was on the books. Uh, it had been withdrawn from its use in the Navy and the military, uh, and it had resurfaced as a type of punishment um, in the uh, late 19th, early 20th century to deal with crimes that were considered to be especially shameful, shameful for men. Uh, and it would include things like uh, robbery with violence um, uh, and uh, exhibitionism and a few other sort of sexual um, misdemeanors or, or, or crimes. Um, <clears throat> the um, notion was originally that uh, flogging was necessary because there were some people who were so degraded, some men who were so... Um, Analytic, that one could not appeal to the reason. One had to employ pain to get them to mend their ways. It's a type of retribution. But in the case of the um, of the um, Hyde Park Hotel robbers, these were um, intelligent young men who had gone to good schools, and so this argument didn't hold. But it seemed all the more horrific that that such people should be subjected to uh, uh, such a brutal crime. It seemed uh, again. Uh, Un unworthy of British society. Yeah, and I think, you know, that too leads into, um, you know, uh, the relationship between the upper classes and crime and the police. You kind of have a chapter that talks about sort of the uh, tenuous at best relationship between the police and the upper classes at this time. And I kind of think that fits well with the discussion about, you know, who and for what gets, you know, flogged or, 
you know, that sort of punishment. Yes, well, the, the relationships of the police and the, and the public, again, is fascinating. <laughs> On the one hand, um, it's, this, this case makes clear the importance of having informers. It's something that is not often talked about in uh, the histories of uh, crime or, and, and, and policing. But um, an enormous amount of um, attention was paid to reports handed in by, by um, uh, informers or informants. And indeed, one of the, of the four accused men in this case uh, had acted as an informer for the police just uh, a month or so before he himself was uh, arrested. Um, there's also the case as, as well that comes out that when the police, uh, as in this case, have to uh, question or make inquiries amongst the upper classes, they uh, are very cautious and deferential. And uh, one police officer remembers a case in which when he asked to um, uh, investigate a house, search a house, the woman in charge of the house, an upper-class woman, he said, viewed him as someone who might be looking after the drains or the, or the, or the garbage, uh, that uh, the police were not viewed with awe by the upper classes, but rather seen to be carrying out a sort of un, un, uh, unpleasant but uh, necessary duty. So that um, the, the police, um, again, had uh, to sort of straddle these, these two sorts of separate worlds uh, to exploit the, um, the working class criminals you know, using the old notion that it took, a, it took a thief to catch a thief on the one hand. And on the other hand, their, the cautiousness with which they dealt with, uh, with the upper classes. Yeah, and we've definitely been touching on uh, class quite a bit in this discussion. Um, and I, one of the things that you sort of point out or use, I guess, in your analysis of how the story of the Playboys uh, interacts with uh, discussions of class in the 1930s London is sort of the, the geography of the city itself. So how did you use sort of the how London geography to sort of talk about class in this case in particular? Well, I guess one of the fascinating things about the, this particular uh, case is the importance of Mayfair, this West London neighborhood, uh, which was a sort of bastion of, of, of upper class wealth and power. Um, there's been a whole rash of very important and useful books on uh, the working class neighborhoods of London, especially uh, East London. Um, but not too much has been done, uh, interestingly enough, on West London. And it's partly the, I think, the repugnance in some ways of social historians to look at the wealthy. It's to sort of assume that one knows what's going on. It's all too clear. The, the, what, there's no secrets held by the upper classes. They're the subject of newspaper reports every day. Uh, but I, I, what I found, again, was that uh, for these uh, young men who are in some ways representative of their, of their class, the, the upper 1% of the population, uh, Mayfair was their London. Uh, this area bounded by Piccadilly and Regent Street, uh, Oxford Street, and, and uh, Hyde Park. Um, and uh, it's, it's striking that that's where they live, that's where they uh, carried out their crimes, and in fact, that's where at least uh, one of them is arrested. Uh, so it's, an, uh, it's a, <clears throat> a world unto itself. 
It's also the case that with the um, with Mayfair, uh, the historian is and its inhabitants. And the historian is sort of studying up rather than studying down, as one might do when working with looking at the working class. But the in some ways, the looking at the upper classes is, is easy because the Times of London carries every day its its uh, account of the doings of the, the rich and the powerful, of their birthdays, their celebrations, their promotions, um, their uh, elections. Um, and uh, there's a continuation uh, of their presentation of self so that um, one can follow their family networks uh, and have a good idea of, of uh, who's, who's related to whom. Um, now, as far as the class is concerned, again, one of the fears of the um, 1930s with the Great Depression is that classes are becoming, um, or at least the lines between classes, is becoming eroded. Now, in reality, we know that there's an enormous disparity in wealth uh, between the upper classes and the lower classes. But there was this notion of, of um, uh, relative deprivation that uh, people in the upper classes were becoming what was called the new, the new poor. Uh, that is to say, they found that the cost of servants was getting more and more expensive, that uh, the cost of keeping their children in, in private schools was becoming exorbitant. Uh, now, they, still, there was this vast gap between the upper classes and the, and the, uh, and the mass of the population. But there was a sense that there was a, a, a whittling away, an erosion of these disparities. Uh, and uh, the Mayfair men, in part, exploited these sorts of fears in their defense, uh, arguing, for example, that once upon a time they would have been guaranteed positions as salesmen or um, estate agents or, or professionals, but such was not the case anymore. Uh, and therefore, it was hardly surprising that some were tipped over into a life of of subterfuges and, and ultimately of, of criminality. Uh, someone like Evelyn Waugh, for example, makes a joke about it, that uh, bright young men find that uh, palming diamonds in, uh, in jewelish stores is uh, uh, not an unthinkable thing to do. Um, there's a sort of literary and, uh, um, <clears throat> I guess, um, cinematic presentations of these new sorts of views as well with the popularity of the theme of the jewel thief, the notion that uh, something like stealing jewels is not quite the same as, 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 as robbing banks uh, because the jewel thief, uh, at least according to the myth, it has to be somebody who is intelligent, well-educated, can, can move with the best circles. And then is, is, the fact that stealing jewels is not really like stealing money because uh, who needs jewels aren't held by the working classes, they're only held by the wealthy. So the man who steals, steals jewels uh, is in a sense a type of Robin Hood. I mean, perhaps not giving to the poor, but certainly taking from the rich, uh, who um, some, some people suggest uh, aren't worthy of the jewels that they, they hold. So that the, the playboy, again, is a, a sort of figure who... Um, Teeters on the on the on the margins between criminality and uh, and um, legitimacy. Uh, again, someone who leads a life of excitement and uh, is, provides a sort of 
uh, <coughs> a model of masculinity that counters the stress on, on rationality and domesticity. Right, and part of their uh, criminality, at least in, in the case of these four men in particular, sort of intersects very interestingly with um, the growing rise of fascism in Europe and fascism in Britain. And I thought that was a particularly interesting part of your book. Um, and I was wondering sort of, you know, how, or I think a good question to ask would be, how do these men interact with these growing ideas of fascism and how that also sort of intersect with their criminality as well? Yes. Yeah, so well, I think one of the fascinating aspects of this account is that when these young men's and their, and their friends and, and uh, compatriots when it's pushed forward into the 1940s, once war is declared in Europe, um, England uh, never has to deal with the occupation of the country by the Germans. And so one never has a, a, a hard notion of how many people would have um, become uh, explicitly fascists. There was always a tiny minority of the uh, population that was, was supportive of the far right. <clears throat> um, but uh, again, uh, in, some, in some ways, the the war saves the reputation of these playboys because it allows them uh, allows them to uh, live a life of dairy do and end up sometimes as war heroes, uh, and other times as as as, as victims, as war, the war dead. But it, uh, um, <clears throat> if there hadn't been for the war, many of the many more of these young men probably would have ended up in prison or in, in, in jail. Um, the, the fascists, um, determining what was fascistic and what wasn't, um, was a, a difficult um, undertaking. Evelyn Waugh, uh, the noted novelist and, and humorist, uh, a very conservative individual, uh, protested against the use of the word fascist and held up for for scrutiny the the fact that leftists tend to toss the term around saying that anything they didn't like was fascistic um and he, in saying this he was responding to the fact that a number of the left wing observers had uh, uh declared that these four young men on the make who had decided to enter a life of robbery <coughs> were in any sense, fascist, uh, and it was it was said this was simply not the case. But in fact, um, if you if one looks carefully at these histories of these these young men, one finds that uh, a number of them were uh, all too eager to embrace fascism and present themselves as defenders of the um, uh, right wing in in uh, Spain. Uh, several of them uh, tried to sell arms to. Um, to Franco, uh, and declared that indeed that they had been in Spain themselves, fighting uh, for the for the uh, um, revolutionary government against the um, legitimate government. So that um, <clears throat> Wells, uh, sorry, Waugh goes too far in trying to to purge the, the English of of, um, of, of fear of fascism. In fact, he, he suggests that fascism. <coughs> Uh, or the, the the tilt towards fascism is only caused by the, the growth of the left. It's a sort of um, blame the vic 
I'm the victim argument, uh, that if only the left was less vociferous, then you wouldn't have fascism. So it's less responsibility for the chaos that's being undergone. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. With um, Oswald Mosley, again, the head of the British Union of Fascists, you have a man who, again, interestingly enough, is a self-declared playboy, uh, or at least he says in his um, memoirs that uh, when the war broke out, the world, that is the First World War, uh, he ceased being a playboy and then became uh, a soldier. Um, but others would suggest that he never stopped being a playboy, uh, which was, um, again, made all too evident by his uh, self-centeredness, his, his narcissism, uh, and uh, his womanizing, all of which undercut uh, the support that he had slowly been garnering in the mid-1930s. Yeah, and a lot of the arguments that you sort of brought up from people at the time sort of certainly reverberate today. And, and I thought that was particularly interesting. Um, so since we're kind of, I took up a lot of your time. So I, you know, just a couple concluding questions, but if somebody were to read your book and, you know, you have direct access to them after they get done reading, what would be sort of the one takeaway that you would hope that a reader would get from your book? The notion of entitlement, I think, is quite central to the uh, the story. That um, someone has suggested that these these men were suffering from what in America in the recently has been called affluenza. That um, there was a young man in the United States who claimed that his criminal activity was based on the fact that his parents were too wealthy, uh, and it was it was an amazing sort of argument that this um, burden of 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 uh, cash drove him into criminal activities. And these, um, these young men uh, that, um, whose careers I portrayed, um, again, were pushed in large part by this notion of, of, of entitlement, uh, that uh, they were owed somehow or another by their, by their simple being um, uh, a, a life of, of um, of affluence, and but thinking it over <clears throat> again, of course, in the question, case of a, of a monarchy such as Britain, um, you do have a, a political system in which the king or queen and the rest of their um, uh, family uh, enjoy their position of power not because of anything that they've done or would do, not because of certainly not because of their IQ or their uh, abilities as being productive members of society, but simply because of who they are, uh, that they're, they're, they've inherited, they're, by birth, they receive their rewards. And I think it's, it's difficult to, um, to separate this general notion of the necessity of, of the utility of a, of a royal family from that of the uh, people that further down the social pyramid, feeling that they too share a similar sort of um, right to be taken care of. Yeah, I think that's a an excellent point. Um, and so, if people are you know read your book and they find themselves really interested in the topic or the time period, uh, are there any books that you would recommend them to check out next? Well, uh, <laughs> I guess the the first book I should say unblushingly is one of my own called um, what is it called? A Prescription for Murder. 
which uh, is a study of uh, a serial killer in London of the 1890s. Um, and in this case uh, is an account of, first of all, the, the murderer, uh, and then the reaction of the, of the medical world um, to his activities. Um, but coming, that, that book is about 20 years old. Coming up to date, I think the most important book that's come out recently that's uh, comparable, perhaps, uh, is Matt Holbrook's book called The, the Prince of Tricksters, um, <clears throat> which um, I haven't read it all through yet, but it is uh, a brilliant uh, account of one particular con man who was active in Britain in the 20s and, and 30s. Um, and Holbrook, of course, is famous for his book on homosexual London. And this book is almost as good as that. Well, those are some great recommendations, not only for our listeners, but for me as well. I might have to check those out. Um, Dr. McLaren, thank you so much for joining us. And again, I would encourage everyone to check out Playboys and Mayfair Men, Crime, Class, Masculinity, and Fascism in 1930s London by John Hopkins University Press. Dr. McLaren, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.